you have to give people a sense that there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. Here we are. We're in the middle of the worst part of the storm, right near the eye of the hurricane. And eventually the hurricane will pass. It's taking too long and it's wearing on all of us. Hold on, bear down. We're going to get through this. If we're going to get to the other side of this thing, like Dr. Shah was just talking about, we've got to do a better job with testing because the interventions like contact tracing and keeping viruses out of correctional settings and nursing homes and assisted living centers and getting people to isolate when they are sick all ties back to testing. And right now we're not doing a good job. And the indicator for that is that our percent positive rate is 25% day in and day out. When you look at policies that can be enacted, there are some policies that compel and there's some policies that enable. And I think that while a lot of the stuff that we talk about in terms of policies is trying to compel people to not congregate into large settings, to be responsible. Other policies that deal with investments and things like testing can actually enable the public to make wiser, more responsible decisions. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vital Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. We're back today with another COVID-19 roundtable in the shadow of some significant statistics. As of our July 6th recording date, the Arizona Department of Health Services announced 101,441 confirmed cases in Arizona. It took more than four months to hit 25,000 cases, 15 days to double that number to 50,000 cases, and another short 14 days to get over 101,000. In basic terms, COVID-19 is widespread, and at hospitals, inpatient beds are 84% occupied, while 89% of ICU beds are currently filled. Combine those stats with where we are in terms of diagnostic testing availability, results turnaround times, and contact tracing, and there can be only one takeaway. Now is definitely not the time to ease up. Our behaviors remain the most important tools for helping to flatten a steep curve. First choice, stay at home as much as you possibly can. And if you can't, make sure you wash up, mask up, maintain social distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. We need everyone to be in this together in order to get through this together. Speaking of being together, our roundtable is pulled together once again, through the magic of the internet at least. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about healthcare, public health, policy, and community as we move past perhaps the most unusual 4th of July in some time and continue adapting to life with COVID-19. Our COVID-19 roundtable returns, starting off with Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? Hey, everything's good. Thanks. Glad to have you. Dr. Shaw, welcome back. How are you? Doing really well. Thank you again for hosting another episode. Been working in the emergency department and seeing a lot more cases. And always, always welcome on this roundtable, Mr. Marcus Johnson. How are you, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. I want to start where the last episode left off. Increasingly, people are exhibiting levels of frustration of fear, of concern. They are part of the 24-hour news cycle where they're told that we're breaking new records every day. People need a way to process what's going on, Dr. Shaw. What advice can we offer at this point as the ways that people can think constructively moving forward? I think that we've got to give them a sense of perspective about this entire crisis and where we are in the middle of it. Those of us in public office who have been responsible, the people on this podcast have tried to set expectations very truthfully and transparently 
with where we are, what kind of a threat we're facing. And we've basically said that it's going to take a societal effort in order to get this thing under control. I think for the most part, people have done a really great job and acted very responsibly on the whole. Of course, we've seen some of the other side of that on the media. Despite everybody's excellent efforts, we're still seeing that cases are rising and we're in the middle of this. It's hard. It's been a long time. It's hard on people to have to put up with so much hardship for so long. And we have to acknowledge those feelings that people have. Will, I think, mentioned the idea of lockdown fatigue last time we spoke. And that's real. I'll tell you, I feel it too. As the ER doc and the politician, I've been sitting in my house, staying away from other people, not doing much of anything. It's very isolating. It wears on people. And people just feel like I've done it for a long time and I've got to get out. And right now with our increasing counts and everything, right in the face of all of the frustration that you feel, you have to tell people that you have to be even more meticulous and even more careful. And that's the only thing that's really going to bring our counts down and get us through it. The other part is that if we look at the New York experience and the Italian experience and everywhere else that they kind of got caught with this and it went out of control, eventually it did pass. So giving people some hope that, look, it's not going to last forever. We're looking at a situation where we've got weeks, if not maybe a couple months to go of a situation like this where the cases are going to go up, they're going to peak, and then they're going to come back down. I would say a couple months. You have to give people a sense that there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. And that gives people hope that at some point we will get back down to some better place. I think that's how to frame the entire thing and say, okay, here we are. We're in the middle of the worst part of the storm, right near the eye of the hurricane. And eventually the hurricane will pass. It's taking too long and it's wearing on all of us. So that would be my general advice to people. Hold on, bear down. We're going to get through this. Now I say that bear down as a U of A alum. Yep. Caught that. Got that one. Hey, it's July 6th as we're recording this. And this is the day that Arizona Department of Health Services announced we crossed over the 100,000 confirmed cases mark. Will, it took us four months to hit 25,000 cases. It took us 15 days to double that number to 50,000. It took another 14 short days to get to 101,000. I know you don't like talking about cases, and we can, we can absolutely talk about hospitalizations as well, but what are these numbers pointing to? What should they be telling us? And how do we put them into context of this entire journey we've been on that Dr. Shaw just talked about? But I urge everybody to pay a lot more attention to the percent positive rate, because what that tells you is how sufficient is the testing that's in the community now? That's the best measurement stick that we have to figure out how good our testing is. And all the roads lead to Rome, they used to say. All roads lead to testing. It's the starting point for interventions. Quick turnaround time and robust testing is what makes contact tracing efforts effective. If you've got either not enough testing or like we have in Arizona, both not enough testing as evidenced by a 25% positive rate, which is almost doubled what we see in the rest of the country, and turnaround times of like six, seven, eight days, you put those two things together and it's a big, big problem that's cascading into other efforts like contact tracing. Imagine you're running an assisted living or skilled nursing facility and you decide, okay, we're going to commit the resources to testing our staff once a week 
so that we're assured that we're not bringing in the virus into our nursing home. And then you hire a contractor and they come in and you get your test results seven or eight or nine days after the sample's collected. By then, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep the worker out of the nursing home for those seven or eight days? Probably not. And so if you don't have a fast turnaround time, then you can't take action. That's an example in a nursing home. But in the real life world, if you have symptoms and you get tested, and are you going to go into isolation for eight days not knowing your status? Very few people will go into isolation and wait for their test results to come back. Once they get their test results, probably most people will actually isolate to the extent they can given the resources that they have within their house. But if we're going to get to the other side of this thing, like Dr. Shaw was just talking about, we've got to do a better job with testing because the interventions like contact tracing and keeping viruses out of correctional settings and nursing homes and assisted living centers and getting people to isolate when they are sick all ties back to testing. And right now, we're not doing a good job. And the indicator for that is that our percent positive rate is 25% day in and day out. The next highest state, I think, is Florida and Texas, and their percent positives are more like 16%. So we're a real outlier. Is that in and of itself an indicator that we've lost the handle on this? What happened is at the end of the stay-at-home order, the percent positive rate, by the way, in mid-May was about 5%. So that's an indicator that even though we didn't have lots of testing in the community, relative to the amount of community spread that was out there, the testing capacity was kind of okay. Not great, but kind of okay, even though we were like 45th in the country at the time. But now we've got community spread all over the place. And- Testing has gone up. The number of tests done per day has been increasing over the last few weeks, but the amount of community spread that's happening has outstripped that by a wide margin. And so then you get the deficiency that we have. And something is going on with the turnaround times. There's something that's holding back the turnaround times. I don't know if it's a lack of instrumentation within the state or whether it's the lack of laboratory technicians to get the samples turned around in time or whether it goes back to the fact that community spread increased a lot faster than our ability to intervene by increasing laboratory testing resources. It's probably a combination of all of those things. Marcus, from the last time we got together until now, the governor did put out what I think is being euphemistically called the pause order. What's in that order? How has the reaction been, both in terms of municipal government, businesses, individuals, et cetera? Where does that leave us in terms of a culture around being protective related to the coronavirus? There's a lot of things that were in the latest pause order. The two pieces that stick out most to me are, one, there's actually a little more enforcement for local businesses, bars, that aren't abiding by the recommendations or the guidelines. And two, you're seeing a complete 180 in terms of the state's leadership really promoting masking up. Even just anecdotally, whenever I go out, I'm seeing a lot more masks than I was a few weeks ago. And you're already hearing reports about certain businesses, gyms, basically being encouraged, I'll say, to a heavier degree to close their businesses because they are presenting higher risk for transmission of the virus. I think that's called having your license revoked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In terms of where that order is, Will, where you think Arizona needs to be, what's the delta? 
when the governor lifted the restrictions on cities from making a mask wearing requirement, I would have loved to have seen a statewide mask wearing requirement for anybody in public, but we got what we got. So it's an improvement. You could say the same for the pause order from last week. It's an improvement. The nightclubs were surely a definitely a problem. We knew that for sure. So at least we can move those off the table for now. I'm not quite as convinced that shutting gyms is as high a return on investment intervention as the nightclubs has been, but it was good. And it remains to be seen whether the cities will actually do the kinds of enforcement that the executive order suggests that they can do. And that goes for other businesses, the ones that are still open that are supposed to be using CDC mitigation measures. Right now, the cities can do the enforcement, but I I don't know that any cities have actually done that yet. There is a little bit more compliance on that end. It's better than nothing. It's not as good as it could have been. Dr. Shaw, as someone whose day job is on the front lines of healthcare, how do you feel, A, about the order, but also B, about what you're seeing in the community? Marcus sees more people wearing masks anecdotally. Other people see more mask wearing as well. We also see the opposite end of of people completely acting out over masks. From your perspective, when you think about going to your day job and needing to see a whole bunch of people who are newly suffering from this condition, what do you feel when you're out in the community? What do you feel when you see what's going on in the news, and when you reflect upon what our state is doing in response to COVID-19. I agree with what Will said in that these are steps in the right direction. Everything we do to try to stem the flow is going to be positive for caseload and for eventual mitigation of the entire crisis. With regard to what you're seeing out there currently, I agree again, when the local ordinances went in talking about masks being required, all of a sudden you saw an increase all over the place in general mask wearing. I think that in some ways you get a media focus on the individuals that aren't doing it because there is some fascination with that. And I think that we do sometimes focus a little too much on viral videos on social media of somebody tearing down masks at a Target store display. And I think that doesn't reflect really the vast majority of what Arizona's are going through. So I'm actually kind of happy that most people are just doing the right thing. I honestly think that if you were to say to people, we need to put more restrictions in place for these following reasons, then most people really will comply and will understand the need for doing this. Now, Dr. Shaw, in the healthcare world, I think for probably the last 10 years or more, there's been a category of people that we refer to as the young invincibles, roughly in the 18 to 36 age range. We now see in the data high positivity rates for 20 to 44-year-olds. Your message to them. Well, I used to be young and invincible. You know, just just a few years ago, I was in that age range. And I understand that some of the factors we just talked about, about lockdown fatigue and feeling the need to go out and be amongst your peers and have fun and live your life. We all understand. We've all been there. I think that it's best to try to understand how people feel. Maybe think about giving them other ways that they can have outlets that they can still enjoy their lives and feel like they're not going crazy and at the same time, make them understand that there's a responsibility that they have to everybody else around them. If 
you're out and about and you're increasing the prevalence of the disease, then think about your grandma. I'm sure there's somebody in your life who's a senior or somebody who has chronic medical problems. Think about those people and think about all the others that you'll be affecting by doing what you're doing out there. If we can just learn to keep that in mind, then it allows us to say, hey, just let's just keep this going for a few more weeks, at the least of a couple more months, and you're making a difference. People need to know also that those small things that they're doing are making a difference for others. John, I'm going to take a different tack and think, here's the thing. We need public policy that's going to compel better behavior. That's what I think. We saw that the honor system didn't work when the stay-at-home order ended. And so we need public policy to incentivize the right kind of behaviors and discourage the wrong kind of behaviors. Shutting the nightclubs. You could talk individually until you're blue in the face, which each one of those thousand people that were at those nightclubs in downtown Scottsdale, and you, you're not going to be successful. Alcohol is involved with the decision-making and everything. I think you have to have policies that compel the right kind of behavior that encourage the right kind of behavior and discourage the wrong behavior. And the nightclub thing was a good start. Another would be a statewide mask wearing order so that no matter where you go, whether it's a restaurant or a retail store, the store managers and put the merchants in charge of compliance. There's a sign at the door before you come in, you got to have a mask. And so you have to leverage those stakeholders to do the work for you. So that's what I like about the decisions last week. At least there's a little bit more enforcement potentially on what the compliance expectations are for mitigation. At least we could set aside the nightclubs for the next month. Although there's a big loophole. That executive order said if you're a liquor license six or seven holder and your primary business is alcohol, then you're shut down for the next month. But if 50% of your revenue is from food or 51%, then even though you're a liquor license six or seven, which is a bar, you can stay open. I just wanted to reinforce the importance of having the right policy because policies influence the behaviors that we need. Well, I'm, I'm not disputing anything you said, but the question that I think John asked, what's the kind of message that we can give to these folks? Because even if those policies are in place and people aren't getting the message, it won't make as much of a difference. The enforcement on these things has not been super strict and then nor do we want it to be. We don't want people going around and giving these folks citations and tickets left, right and center. I think we'd really much rather have the orders in place, as you said, but also put the message out there that what people are doing is helping their fellow neighbor. I agree with that. Policy needs to go hand in hand with the message. When you look at policies that can be enacted, there are some policies that compel and there's some policies that enable. And I think that while a lot of the stuff that we talk about in terms of policies is trying to compel people to not congregate into large settings, to be responsible, other policies that deal with investments and things like testing can actually enable the public to make wiser, more responsible decisions. I know when we talk about testing, it's a big piece because it allows us to identify where the cases are and where the cases are not. And so from a big picture public health perspective, it's really beneficial. But if you remember when the outbreaks were at their peak up in Northeastern Arizona in the tribes, that wasn't always spurred based on huge gatherings. Those were close-knit family units getting together and spreading the disease. So the more that we're actually able to test, even in the more urban and suburban areas, the better we're able to inform ourselves and our family members about when is it safe and when is it not safe to get together. And I know like in a panacea, in an ideal world, we would have enough testing where we could 
quickly get the test done, quickly get the results back and make an informed decision about whether or not we actually expose ourselves to others and expose others to ourselves. But until we get to there, which takes policy and takes investments, we can't congregate like that. Marcus, what do you say to your peers who say, yeah, I'll get it, but I'll be fine? I tell them that might be the case. But to Dr. Shah's point, there are others who you likely interact with or that you care about who are in the higher risk categories, our parents, our grandparents, friends of family. And our actions will dictate in part whether or not our loved ones get this disease. In large part, this is within our control. And if we choose to take our hands off the steering wheel, if we choose to take our foot off the gas, then there will be more sickness and there will be more death for the individuals that we care about and that we love. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about us. And that usually starts to get through them a little bit more. Dr. Shaw, do any of your 20 to 44-year-old peers even dare to have that conversation with you? Yes. You know, I'm... <laughs> among the circles I run in. My friends are really responsible and they get it, I would say almost to a person. I think that they have basically said that they understand why it's important and why they're being so careful because they don't want to be the one who spreads it and somewhat responsible for killing somebody else. I actually had a friend earlier today, a volunteer on my campaign, tell me that, said, I, I just don't know if I could take it, I found out that I was the reason somebody specifically around me got sick and then had a bad outcome from it. I mean, just, just imagine, imagine the sense of responsibility of being that person. And that chance is certainly there with people that fall into the higher mortality groups. I'm going to ask each of you to grab your magic eight ball. If you remember the magic eight ball, you shake it up, it gives you an answer. The statement is, schools can, should, and will be back in session on August 17th. Marcus, what does your Magic 8-Ball say about that? My Magic 8-Ball says it depends. It depends on where the virus is. It depends on what type of school you are, what age group you're serving. It depends on whether or not the children that are in your school are at higher risk because of pre-existing conditions. And it depends on the demographics of your staff. That's one of the biggest concerns is that if kids are potential carriers, even though they don't get as sick, what does that mean for your staff? If you have a staff that's more elderly, if you have a staff that has pre-existing conditions, you're potentially exposing them. So the most popular answer in public health is it depends. Now that Marcus has taken that off the table, Dr. Shaw, what does your Magic 8 ball say? Given the way we're looking at the cases escalating at this time and where we expect the peak will be based on some of the modeling stuff we've seen, and then when we can expect a decrease in cases similar to the New York situation, I would say that probably August 17th is a little bit aggressive. Probably two weeks after that, around September 1st, we might see a time when it would be okay to open. I, and when I say it's okay to open, I mean that we would make a decision as a society that there are some pros and cons and we've vetted them out. And I think that that's a date that we can agree on. There's still a lot of challenges when it comes to schools. You're talking about a lot of teachers being older than 50, 60, and they're worried about their own safety. I'm not sure how exactly we're going to handle all that because we can't distance as well in a classroom. You have parents very worried that they won't be able to go back to work because those kids will just be at home. And then how are they supposed to support family with the kids being at home? There are a lot of teachers worried that if you delay the kids too much, then you're missing out on valuable instruction time and that these kids aren't going to catch up. There are a lot of factors, as, as we know, that go into that school opening debate. It's, it's happening. A lot of my fellow public officials that I really trust and respect 
have differing views on this and what are the importance of these various factors. Putting all that together, I would say probably the way we're looking right now, we're, August 17th looks a little aggressive, pushing it out just a little bit more, maybe a couple weeks. Of course, this is a completely speculative guess that I'm making. I would say like September 1st might be a time where we agree that despite all the problems, we'd want to come back to school. Like your lightning round answers, thank you for an excellent answer, but that will never fit in that little window on that little triangle in the Magic 8-Ball. It just won't. It, Will, one of the options on the Magic 8-Ball is it is decidedly so. I'm guessing you won't choose that when it comes to school starting on August 17th. Resources and policies will decide for us. That will fit on the bottom of the Magic 8-Ball. Thank you. Would you like to elaborate on that? I don't that? know what 8-Ball you guys are using, but my, mine had like one word. <laughs> if the policies begin to work, if the mask wearing intervention begins to make a dent, if we can get our testing squared away and get a much better turnaround time, make it a lot easier for people to get tested, if we can get the healthcare workers in to the hospital system, because the psychology of it is, is it's even safe to do when you're in surge capacity and close to crisis standards of care, people will feel more comfortable if we felt like the hospital system was secure. But I think it depends on how effective the policies are, how good the compliance is. Do we get our handle on testing so that the contact tracing can begin to work better? Will the contact tracing resourcing continue to improve? Those will all work in our favor. And the other thing, which is also working in our favor very, very slowly, which is the mirror image of everything I just said, which is the more people that continue to get infected, the more herd immunity we end up having. Eventually, if you look at the ASU biodesign model, it has us, with our current interventions in place and the beta that they have calculated, it has us getting to herd immunity around Christmas. So as we approach herd immunity this fall, then that begins to be our biggest mitigation measure is the fact that so many people have been infected and recovered. I think there will be school this fall, but I don't think it's going to be August 17th, and I don't think it'll be in September either, maybe in October. But then the wild card becomes what's the influenza season look like. But don't you also think, I mean, we talk about schools reopening as if it's some sort of one-size-fits-all decision. And we know that as the disease stands right now, it's hit different parts of the state, different parts of the country in different ways. So, Will, to your point, you're always talking about it's not about when, but it's about how. Ultimately, I would assume that authority will be granted to local jurisdictions, local districts to be able to open up based on certain criteria, based on where the prevalence of disease is in their and, geographic and, region. And for the perception of risk within that community. Those are elected boards. They already have the authority to make those decisions. Could be taken away by the state, but... But I do agree. I think there will be some schools that are open, maybe even in August. And it depends on where. Different school districts that have a different perception of the risk for this and a different risk tolerance. We're going to leave the magic eight ball for now. We're going to go to lightning round. Are you ready? Here we go. Cases are up, but deaths are not. That's because more younger people are contracting COVID-19 and they're not going to need hospital beds, they're not going to need ventilators, and they're not going to die. True or false? Will? I think mostly true. And I hope it's also true that we're getting better at assisted living and skilled nursing infection control. But I think A is, is the most of the reason why. Marcus? True. And because our therapeutic approaches are getting better. We have new types of therapies that are helping True. to alleviate the severity of the disease in its most extreme phases. Dr. Shaw. Mostly true. 
folks that are younger can die from it, but they're dying at much lower rates. If you looked at Arizona's numbers last week, the mortality for people in the 20 to 44 year uh, range was 0.23%, whereas the mortality for people over 65 was 12.6%. I mean, you're, you're talking about a 60x difference. Brand new research out this weekend. Hundreds of international scientists urging the World Health Organization to revise its guidelines, basically saying six feet is not enough. On the money or not sure yet? Marcus? This is difficult. I mean, yes, it's a few hundred scientists suggesting this to the World Health Organization. My biggest question is always, what will you use this information for? What sorts of changes are you asking of the public based on this information? If you're advising the public to move from six feet to 10 feet or six feet to 12 feet or something like that, it might help to a certain degree. But if the evidence doesn't suggest that it's going to be overly effective, then wait for more evidence to come in before you start making any sort of policy decisions or recommendations based on this. I think it's important for us to to look at, but I just don't see us recommending complete new practices at this point. Will, as American Airlines says they're going to sell out their planes, where do you fall on this research? Have you had a chance to look at it? First of all, I haven't had a chance to look at it, but I tend to look at it like Marcus was saying. I'd like to get us better at compliance with six feet than to move it to 12 and have even worse compliance. If we could get more people to do six feet, that would be a win. Dr. Shaw, your thoughts? Agree with Marcus. I haven't seen the evidence and I haven't seen under what conditions they generated these recommendations. For example, indoors or outdoors? What did the settings in which they found these results, what, was it in a controlled setting or people in a close room together. You know, it, it, I think a lot of that depends, the airflow, all that kind of stuff, it, it will depend uh, on that. So it's, it's worth seeing, or, or was it more empirical data where you just kind of had different recommendations out in a society? I mean, all that stuff matters as to quality of evidence. I would agree also with Will on this one and Marcus, that it just enforcing those kinds of things becomes really hard. Last time I was at the grocery store, I didn't have a tape measure with me and I was measuring, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're within that six feet and I'm getting uncomfortable. I just think then to say somebody should be at 12 feet away, I'm not sure that has a whole lot of practical value. Just to close off on that, the research itself was for typical indoor air velocities, quote unquote, and it was very much an empirical study. Public health writ large has done a good job with trying to message to the general public, but it is not easy. And distrust is sowed when you find new evidence, but you don't think through the practical implications and how to communicate that to the general public. I completely agree that we need to pay attention to new evidence and new research, but just releasing it for the sake of releasing it and not giving thought to how we frame this and what actions we're asking to be taken based on this new information, that has the potential to sow more distrust with the system as a whole. The other thing that I think we ought to understand is that, and I haven't seen the research, but I'm, I'm almost certain they're going to say that in the context of their study, the spread is probabilistic because you come in one foot of someone else doesn't mean you're going to pick up the virus 100% either. And, and just because you stay at 12 feet doesn't mean it's zero. I'm sure there's a continuum, right, of probability. It's not just 100%. So what they're probably doing is that they're saying, okay, well, the probability is X at six feet and probability is X at 12 feet, kind of like that. 
which means that there's some marginal difference. And that's where it really has to translate into something practical. And I think people understand that. Sometimes the way I view it, please pardon the very scientific and wonky type of analogy, but it's kind of like if your high school chemistry teacher taught you about atoms and kind of like an electron cloud surrounding you, that's kind of what's going on with the virus. It's kind of in a little bit of like a pig pen type of cloud around you. The closer you get, the more the probability, but the further out you get, the, the less that cloud is, is actually dense of virus. So that's kind of how I see it. You're going to have different probabilities. People should kind of understand that. Last lightning round question, true or false? Public confidence is served by the 24-hour news cycle and the need to present more and new stories on COVID-19. Will? False. Dr. Shaw? False. I agree with Will. We need to be a little more judicious in terms of what we put out there and how and put those things into a proper context for people to understand. And Marcus, probably not just more judicious, but more consistent. That's exactly the word I was about to use. I think false. I think that the frequency is pretty accurate, but we need to be more consistent to keep hammering away at constant messages to the public. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Marcus. Indeed, our communications regarding how we address COVID-19 need not just frequency, but consistency. So here at The Spark, we'll be as consistent as we can be. Number one, self-isolate if you don't feel well. Number two, if you do feel well, continue to stay home as much as you can. Number three, wash your hands. Number four, maintain social distance wherever you can. And when you can't, number five, Mask up, AZ. My mask protects you. Your mask protects me. Hashtag mask up, AZ. Our roundtable returns in two weeks, but the spark will be back next week with part two of our dialogue on heat in Arizona, this time featuring the folks who are addressing community impacts head on. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. Get ready for next week's part two on heat by listening to last week's informative part one. Check out our recent favorites like our statewide food systems discussion, or our in-depth affordable housing episode. There is so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our three dozen episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.